All right, we are starting right now. I think it's the first time I've ever gone live a half a moment early. Because <laughs> I wasn't looking at the clock, I just clicked and then saw. But anyways, this is the Friday Q&A. You guys ask the questions. I will try to provide you with, at least to the best of my ability, uh, an answer that is biblical. That's the idea. I know your questions are flooding in right now. And the um, uh, we're gathering them. We'll pull them together. But the first question, oh, which, just, 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 just I always forget. There we go. I got this. I, I'm a professional. This is about as professional as it gets for me. So question number one is from a person who sent a question to me. And I'm going to bring it up. Okay, it's an anonymous question. This one is about taking thoughts captive, which is what I put on the uh, thumbnail there. This is a, a verse I've heard used a lot. Uh, but the more I've studied it in context, I think it's about something a little different than the way I usually hear it used. So this is not meant to embarrass someone who's used it that way. I, I think I've used it that way, right? But when I look at it in context, it feels a little different. So here we go. This is um, about 2 Corinthians 10.5. And the question is, what does it mean to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.5? What are some examples of how we can live this out? And let's go to the text so we can look at it ourselves. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now, here, um, this is, I'm looking currently at the NASB, um, just for those who are curious, not because that's the only one to use or something. Uh, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The way I usually hear this first used, and I'm going to say it does have application here, so this is not like a big wholesale don't use the verse like this. I just think that we, we're actually just getting the context a little wrong when we do this um, as our primary application as opposed to secondary. Is we often use this like we're thinking as Christians, uh, we have to like control our thoughts and take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And that this means sort of like doing sort of this mental exercise where you prevent yourself from giving into or, or even having difficult or bad or ungodly thoughts. Um, I think that that is good and bad. Okay, that's a mixed bag in my opinion. And the reason why it's good is because I do think things and I want to make sure I filter that through the truth of Christ. But it's bad in the sense that Christians often will become, not often maybe, but sometimes, and some of you will know this has afflicted you. You can become kind of paranoid about your thoughts. And you, you start thinking that just a bad thought occurring to you means that you've done something wrong. And I think that is not a good biblical principle for us to practice. I think what we should say is, wait a minute, in scripture, it talks about how the flesh lusts and desires against the spirit. That this is like an ongoing thing that happens all the time in your life. Your your carnal sin nature is, is desiring things against the spirit. Now, these desires are obviously connected to thoughts. And you simply cannot remove these thoughts entirely from your life. So if, you're, if your agenda, if you're thinking that Christian obedience is, I have to like not even think things that are ungodly, they, they can't occur to me, then you're, you're setting a, a standard that is not, I think, biblical, and it's going to cause you a lot of paranoia or feeling defeated, feeling condemned when you shouldn't be. That's just the flesh. It's what you do with the thought. That's the part that matters. <clears throat> okay, so let's, let's look at this verse in context to see what Paul is talking about. He's talking about how when he shows up in Corinth, He's not going to, I'll just read it and I'll give you guys some commentary as I go. Um, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's, okay, I'd love to do a whole study on that. Okay, I who am meek 
with you face to when when face to face with you but bold toward you when absent <clears throat> i ask that when i'm present i need not be bold with the confidence with which i propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh paul has a very long sentence here right he does this a, a lot <laughs> and uh, peter does even more i think and the idea is there's these like people accusing paul of being a, a, a fake apostle or a weak apostle or you know and they're trying to bring corinthians after themselves this represents like the people who run their ministries based off of their ego and how they're such powerful speakers and they're very aggressive. Um, nothing wrong with being a powerful speaker. Apollos was a powerful speaker, but these people are doing it in a carnal fashion, right? Um, they're bullying their way through church leadership effectively. And then they see Paul as competition. So they're, they're, this is what you get from reading Second Corinthians. They're talking down about Paul. They're, they're saying, look, he comes and he's weak and humble and meek. And Paul wasn't this bold, like... He was bold, but not big chested, you know, man of loud, deep voice. Didn't it? It's not all that kind of bold, right? <laughs> Paul was a different kind of bold. He, he had the bold of, boldness of courage, not of um, presence in that sort of impressive sense. So he says, hey, I want to come and be humble. I want to come and be calm. But if you guys don't shape up, I'm going to come and do church discipline and I'm going to be bold. You're complaining I'm not bold. I'll, I'll end up being bold in the way you don't like. Um, then in verse three, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Or um, I think ESV or NIV probably says strongholds here. So he's like, hey, hey, I just want you to know all that I'm doing. It's not going to be this, this, this carnal battle about the flesh. I am warring. There's a war going on, but my weapons, right? They're not this sort of carnal appearance of strength the the outward appearance of strength and posturing and rhetoric that kind of thing that you see with a lot of speakers instead what is he all about he's going to take down d destroy fortresses but what are the fortresses right we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of god and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of christ verse five gives like three examples destroying speculations right destroy destroying every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking thoughts captive. I see all of this to, to give this the right framing, I think. All of this is not in context of Paul's internal thought life, but rather his out, outward and external ministry. Hey, my ministry is about not attacking people, not flesh and blood. It's about destroying ideas that are contrary to Christ and the truth of Christ and the goodness of Christ and the holiness of Christ and the doctrines of Christ. He's doing a um, theological battle. That's what he's saying. And so this is not directly about someone who thinks, I had a temptation to do a wicked thing. I have to take every thought captive. You can apply it to that, but that's not initially, I think, what it's about. Initially, it's about Christians and Christian communities right? And Christian leaders making sure that when they step into situations, they first ask what beliefs are going around here that are not consistent with Jesus. What behaviors are reflecting thoughts and ideas that are not consistent with Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus like over and over again. And this you see in Paul all the time, right? So an example of this could be someone who's feeling condemned because they, they still struggle with sin. Uh, like, and I mean the thought life, your thought life is you're still, you still have temptations to sin and you go, well, Christ has set me free and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That would be subjecting that thought in captivity to Christ. 
um, or someone who's not just struggling with thoughts of sin, but rather engaging in lifestyles of sin unrepentant, you say, hey, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There's a belief there that that you 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 don't have to change the direction of your heart um, away from sin towards God. And so those are some of the things that are there. What we often do is we, we apply this to just our internal thought life battles. And I think we, we miss the context. Paul's talking about how he ministers to others not by attacking people, but by attacking the ideas that are holding them back from following Jesus, from knowing Jesus better. And as a last case resort, he would do things like excommunication, but he'd rather fight the ideas and fix the people. So it's a good thing for us to remember, say, when you're commenting online, say when you're, you're dialoguing with, with, with friends and family, and remind yourself, I'm not fighting against their flesh and blood. It's, a, it's this idea this idea is a stronghold that they're believing that's keeping them from Christ. This idea is an ungodly, unchristlike thing, and I want to I want to help destroy it, not them, but the idea. And so we focus on, you know, ideas and not people. We attack ideas and not people as Christians. I think that's our method. Number two, Deborah Patty says, "My daughter and her father-in-law visited the church I attend." They brought, they brought my three-month-old grandson, who was making loud sounds. One of the attendants asked them to leave. Now I have mixed feelings about this church. Should I continue to attend? Um, Deborah, my, my, I only have a little snippet of your story. My two senses, absolutely, she's still in the church. Um, and not that doesn't make what the attendant did right. I just think this is not an issue to leave the church over. I think the first thing you want to do is, um, you know, realize that your, your inner mama bear is rising up. And um, we can overreact when, when people hurt or wound our loved ones, especially when you're like, hey, my family finally comes to the church and then someone does this to them. And uh, yeah, that's I've, I've been there, okay? I've seen that, but I don't think you should leave the church over it. I think that would be to treat the church the same way that that attendant treated your family, right? Like it would, it would not be turning the other cheek, but it would be striking back. So that'd be my encouragement to you in that. Now on, on the flip side, it'd be good to find out from the church and say, maybe go to one of the leaders and ask, Hey, this is what happened. Is that, is that what's supposed to happen? What should, what should I do? If you know, what's the rules for having a three month old in the sanctuary? Um, how much noise is okay. And, and find out cause every church is a little different and, um, you know, you, you just need to respect that they're trying to do crowd control in the sense of rules that will bless everybody. And if they're worried, someone's not going to hear the message because of the baby. And they say, hey, I think you guys need to step into the, hopefully they have like a foyer with a sound system where they can still listen, right? But from the way you worded it, it sounds like they were just asked to leave. That's, could have been better, could have been done better. And maybe that's what you could talk to the leaders about and say, hey, can I talk to you? I think this, this should have happened differently um, and find out what the rules really are. But yeah, I would say try to, try to model for your family the love for not only them, but for say the attendant and everybody else that you wished they would have showed to your family. Number three, this is Annie Wall who says, a divorced lady in my church recently got remarried to someone else. The church is not allowing married couples to serve in any area of the church. Is this biblical? So she's divorced and she got remarried and they don't allow remarried couples to serve in any area of the church. Um, is that biblical? No. Um, if that's the blanket rule, no, I don't think it's biblical. Um, again, I want to have grace towards different churches. You know, they're probably doing what they think is honoring God, right? They, they're trying to do what they think is the best and right thing. And there's a good chance that you're not going to change their mind on this. Uh, I would recommend my really long video on divorce and remarriage. 
I did a whole research project on that topic. I did a three-hour video on it, and it's in every and it's not just about marriage; it's about divorce and remarriage, specifically. And it's a three hours with with footnotes and with timestamps, so you can check it out. We'll link it in if if one of my mods can put it in the live chat right now, the divorce and remarriage video. Check that out. Maybe you could forward that to them. But here's the thing: if you're divorced and remarried. And you, you say you watch this video and you, and you go, hey, you know what? My situation, where it, is, where it stands now, it, I shouldn't, I legitimately should not be barred from serving the Lord. Then you, you just have to, at that point, attend a different church, I think. Because um, not like you just want to pick the, the, loose, the church with the loosest standards ever. No, but it's difficult to be part of a church that won't let you serve in any capacity at all. Like you can't, you can't clean the bathrooms like you can't do anything um, then you might want to look at a church where you can actually serve and be part of the fellowship and they don't look at your your past as permanently barring you from serving the Lord in your future I, I think that there are some limits depending on the marriage situation where someone can't be an elder that's that's biblically sound but to say they can't do anything yeah and then it depends on the peculiars of that exact situation so I don't think it's biblical if that's the blanket rule, but I think that there can be a biblical way of doing this where you say, hey, you know, we, we, we're, we know you, we're in fellowship with you, we know your story, you you divorced, you remarried, you have not repented, you haven't, you know, let's say you divorced wrongly, let's say the, the divorce was not justified and the remarriage, you didn't seek restoration, there needs to be some some real spiritual work done here where you repent of the of the of the decisions you made in the past and you show remorse over it i don't think you have to break off the current marriage i don't think that that works but if there's an, an attitude change then i would open the doors for at least you know at least some ministry opportunities perhaps perhaps not eldership depending on how you um depending on the details yeah check out my video on the three hours it, i mean it's it's long because it's nuanced and careful and give that some thought maybe pass it on to someone you think who might need that. Kenna Lynch says, why are there sacrifices, more specifically sin offerings, in the millennial temple on earth? Ezekiel 42, 13. I don't get it since Jesus was the final and perfect sacrifice. Okay, I, I don't have the full answer for you on this, but it's not that I haven't thought about it. <laughs> but let me walk you through some of the issues that I, I think will help alleviate because... Um, there's, there's, a, there's a couple different ways of interpreting or looking at this last chapters of Ezekiel, but I think whichever view you take, it shouldn't cause you the kind of concerns you're having, right? That, that this sort of threatens Jesus' sacrifice. Um, so let's look at the verse. Um, in in this, this passage in Ezekiel, God is showing Ezekiel this massive temple. And if memory serves, it's like a mile um, by a mile. That's the, st the, the structure of the temple is a mile by a mile. It's massive. It's absolutely huge. And everybody's coming to it. Jews, Gentiles, they're all coming to it. And they're going to be coming in and doing these sacrifices. Now, big picture, that one way of viewing this is, oh, this is merely a picture of the unity there is in Christ, that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the cornerstone and we're the temple and we're all gathering in him. He is the sacrifice. You know, Ezekiel's using this language symbolically. And it's just talking about the fulfillment of these things, which is in Jesus. Um, another perspective, and I'm, that's not my view, but I, I think it's possible. Okay. Another perspective is that this is talking about the millennium. That is after Jesus returns, he establishes a thousand year reign on earth. And I have a, a teaching on six different views of eschatology of end times that you might check out. One of them is premillennial, right? Where, where Jesus is going to come and have a thousand year reign. During that thousand year reign, 
many think, well, that's what, Eze what Ezekiel's talking about. Um, hey, maybe this is going to be a physical real temple in Jerusalem. And then your question comes up. You say, well, then why are they offering sacrifices, right? And I'll, let's read the passage here. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separate area, they are the holy chambers where the priests who are near to the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There they shall eat, shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering for the place is holy. Um, so that was one one uh, example. Now, um, sin offering, Jesus, okay, a sin offering in particular, a sin offering is a special Levitical term. And it means like your disofferings to pay for sin. Like that's what it represents. And so some would push back and say, hey, this can't be right. Because Hebrews tells us that, that there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the sacrifice. And if you continue sacrificing, you are then in rebellion to Christ. So how can these two go together? And I think that um, we've read Hebrews too, too woodenly. And that's why we have a hard time with the idea of a future temple with sacrifices. Now, I'm not saying we're guaranteed to have a future. I'm just saying on the idea, on the interpretation, on the hypothesis... <laughs> That this is about a literal future temple. It shouldn't cause us theological consternation because we're worried that there's like a confrontation with these sacrifices and the sacrifice of Jesus. And let me give you several examples why. Um, <clears throat> for one, in, uh, in the Old Testament, God had them doing these sacrifices. That was not in rebellion to Christ. There was nothing wrong with it. It was all meant to picture Jesus, right? So then you want to say, well, why, why, did, were they, why did they stop in the New Testament? Well, they sort of did and they sort of didn't. Um, in the book of Acts, after the disciples, you know, they get filled with the Holy Spirit, they don't discontinue the temple stuff. They continued observing the, the Levitical law. The, they continued doing all that same stuff. Even Paul goes and offers a sacrifice in the temple at one point in the book of Acts. Paul, he's the apostle of liberty, right? He's like, hey, we're not under the law. But he goes and offers this because there's an awareness that he offered it as a Jew honoring God's work through the law, but in full recognition that Jesus was the fulfillment of even the sacrifice he was committing right then. So you get to Hebrews. Well, then why is Hebrews saying you can't do these things? I think the context is this. Hebrews is saying these things need to not be continued in rebellion to the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews is saying, look, there's a lot of Jews who have rejected Jesus and they continue the sacrifices. Then there are some Jews who say Jesus isn't enough. You need to go and continue these sacrifices. And if that's your teaching, now you're in rebellion to Christ. Now that is a con confrontation against the gospel itself, that Jesus has paid the sacrifice. God's judgment on this might be partly how the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, where he, he removes their ability to have these sacrifices as a way of trying to push them towards Jesus, right? He's the fulfillment. So the sacrifices can be optional for specifically for the Jew when they have the temple still standing. You can't even do it now. Right? There aren't any sacrifices in Judaism anymore, not like that. They just try to offer good works. It's a weird new version of Judaism called rabbinic Judaism that doesn't that ancient Jews would probably not recognize. Um, but the uh, the Jew of the of the Book of Acts could offer these sacrifices in honor of Christ, knowing Christ is the fulfillment. But it wasn't to be exported to the Gentiles at the time, but perhaps in the millennial state. There's a time where it's like, now the fullness has come. Now the world is honoring Christ. There's no more rebellion against him. This temple would only stand as memorial to show and demonstrate the good things Jesus has done. So it will be done in honoring Christ and not in rebellion to Christ. And that's that, I think, is the big difference here. So, it's, see, it's not the sacrifices themselves. It's the, it's the meaning and purpose behind them 
That's the issue that's most important. That's how I interpret it. That's why I'm okay if Ezekiel talks about a, a, a temple in the millennium where sacrifices take place because it's with full knowledge of Christ, right? The, the knowledge of, of the Lord fills the world at that time. And so either interpretation would, I think, not be a problem theologically. The question is which one's right. I'm not sure. Number five, giant mushroom tree has a question. Hey, Mike, I'm double-minded and depressed. I want real salvation, but I have a hard time fully surrendering. Good works and prayer feel like pushing a boulder up a hill. Any advice? Well, um, giant mushroom tree. This is a situation where I would want to, again, I say this occasionally, but I say it because I think it needs to be said. I would, I would want to just sit with you. And I'm sorry I don't have the ability. There's too many requests that come in to do it, practically speaking. But I would want to just sit with you and listen and talk to you and ask you 100 questions before giving you counsel on these issues. Because... Um, details are so important here. So one thing I'd recommend is reach out to a local leader, a godly person. doesn't matter if they're officially a pastor or not. Think in your life, who do I know that's godly that will give me the time of day, that will sit down with me and listen and let me talk about these issues that's wise? You don't. You want someone who's, let me add wise to the word godly here because I just think it'll help you pick a good person. They're not only godly, they are wise, right? When, um, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, I think it is. No, 5. Acts chapter 5. They they wanted to appoint people to be over certain ministries in the church, uh, the, the, the giving of the food to the widows and the distribution. And they said they wanted to find people who were filled with the spirit and wisdom. That's that's why I say godly and wise, right? They're, they're filled with the spirit and wisdom. That is, wise words flow from their mouth. They, they listen and they, hmm, and they say something a little bit wiser than the next guy. Um, find that person and talk to them and dig into this issue. Uh, now, to give you a few little things that might give you some help, you say, I'm double-minded and depressed. Um, and you're, you're really struggling because you feel like it's hard to surrender. It's hard to obey God. I just want to tell you that's okay. Um, it's okay that it's hard. And it's okay that for a season, maybe even for a long season, things are difficult and you're struggling. There's an old story I heard long ago, and I think it's probably true. I'm not I'm not a um, uh, a plant guy, but but it's 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 really it's an analogy from trees, and it's something that helped me through hard seasons of my life thinking about it. And the idea is this: is that during drought, you will see you know trees dry up and and leaves can fall from the trees and they look like they're dying, but it's during these same seasons of drought that at least some trees their their roots are actually they're still growing. Their roots are digging down deeper. And the roots are digging deeper to get better access to water. And so sometimes we go through sometimes long, sometimes lifelong seasons of difficulties and trials because outwardly you feel this is, I feel like I'm falling apart, but your roots are going deeper down into that living water, into Christ. And there's a growth that happens through struggles and trials that doesn't happen any other way. And so I'm I'm sorry, if I could snap my fingers, I would, in my human lack of wisdom, just, just make everything better for you. But in the light of eternity, you're going to see that these current struggles, I'm double-minded, I feel depressed, um, I, I feel like pushing a boulder uphill to do prayer and good works. You're going to find that this labor is going to have growth. You're, you're exercising spiritual muscles to follow Christ and to obey Christ and to pray and to seek him. And there will be spiritual growth as you as you feel torn down, you'll be you'll be getting built up. And Paul talked about this when he says, um, you know, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So you don't have to fix these things. You have to you have to seek to obey Christ in these things. 
and often it's sometimes it's when we stop trying to fix the problems that the problems do get easier because we're we're resigned to obedience in the middle of difficulty and that that already that is a big boulder that's moving <laughs> just that resignation to i'm just going to obey you i'm just going to trust you god i'm just going to keep seeking you and so beyond that i would encourage you to seek counsel and get get more advice on these things anonymous question says here uh define love according to the bible is it a feeling an act a choice this is very important to me because it will inform how i view if i was loving or not in situations okay i hear you take what i say here with a grain of salt because you're you're asking a general question about specific situations i don't know about those situations so even though i'll give you an answer i might have applied it a little different than you would when you hear it because there's something i didn't know about <laughs> in that situation um love according to the bible is um there's a difference between uh, how we define love um, and how that relates to the word choice. So defining love in scripture is, I guess I could go to 1 Corinthians 13, right? When we could look, well, let's just look at it together. And for those who are like, oh gosh, this passage again, oh, something's wrong with your brain. <laughs> um, listen to the description of love. Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It is not taking into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Right? It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, what you'll notice here is that this is not a definition of love. It's a description of love. There's a difference between defining and describing things and as I understand it, this is a description of love. It's what love looks like when it's being acted out. So what is love? Well, love is when you're patient and, and it's when you're kind, right? It's, it's when you're not jealous. That is an act of love. It's when you tie these things together. Ultimately, love is caring about others. That's, I mean, that's ultimately, I think, a simple definition of what love is. Love is a, a very strong care for others. But the best dis even description of love, the highest one is Jesus, right? God so, so loved the world, he gave his only son. This is, this is love, right? That, that a man would lay his life down for his friends. And so I think the highest example of love is self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus did. He, he suffers pain and, and, and difficulty and suffering, just all kinds of horrible things that others will be blessed that others will be helped that others will be lifted up so love in that sense isn't i want you it's i care about you and the way that we sometimes confuse love in our culture is we we relate love to desire to have right i love hamburgers but that's not even the kind of love we're not talking about, that's not patient kind right that, that, that that's not any of those things that love is just desire to have. So when I'm a kid and I think I love this girl, right? How many girls that I think I was like, oh, I have a crush. Is this love? Is it love? All I was really thinking is how much I wanted them as a girlfriend or for whatever purposes. That's what I was thinking in my head, how much I wanted them. But that's not what love is. Love isn't just how much I desire you. Love is how much I care about you. And this is why love, as opposed to just desire, can demonstrate patience, kindness, self-sacrifice. This is why some people who you say you love, you're the least patient, 
the least self-sacrificing and the most jealous of in, in bad ways. Um, it's the most selfish and self-seeking because that wasn't love. That was just desire you confused with love. So I think that the biblical idea is love is love is uh, concern for others, giving of self to benefit and bless and help others. An example of this, when I got married, I remember getting something, a present for my wife or doing something for my wife. And I did it for her and I thought she would really like it. And she just didn't care. Like, and this was not because anything was wrong with her, <laughs> lest, you, lest you think that that was the problem. It was because I just misunderstood what she would want, right? Like what would bless her? What would make her happy, right? Oh, I did this thing. And she's like, oh, good, good. And she walks away. Um, and then I remember getting frustrated. You didn't, you didn't like what I did. What, what I was being confronted with was the conflict between my desire to have her respond positively to me versus my desire to actually just bless her. And when I realized, oh, if it doesn't bless her, then why, why am I upset at her? Right? It was just, it, it was just a, a, a silly little thing. So I don't know if that kind of helps a little bit. Um, when you ask if uh, define love according to the Bible, the definition of love, I think, is caring for others. Um, the description of love is these things we read in 1 Corinthians 13 and demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. But then you say, is love a choice? And there I say, yes, love is a choice. Um, because caring for others doesn't always mean having intense emotional feelings towards others. Right? Love has feelings associated with it frequently, but those feelings aren't itself love. Love is the actual care, not the emotional the emotional stuff that often flows from that care, but doesn't always. Because you can love somebody when you don't have that sense of care, that feeling of, of, of um, emotional love in a sense. So that's why love is absolutely a choice. Love is absolutely entirely a choice. I mean, someone frustrates you and you're upset with them and you decide I'm just gonna be kind and gracious to them, that was love. That was love. Um, all right, number seven. This is from Jay Towels. Oh, and I have a quick announcement for you guys before I get to number seven. The uh, the 20th, which is Monday, I'm going to be interviewing... No, wait, is it Monday? I'm pretty sure it's the 20th. I'll be, yeah, interviewing Jay Warner Wallace, and we're going to talk about um, some evidence for Christianity stuff and maybe some of his story coming to Christ as a, an atheist uh, cold case detective and we'll talk about his new book as well so that's going to be on the 20th and that's going to be my last stream for the year i won't be doing anything with you guys my last video ultimately for the year as far as i know unless something spontaneous happens um until the first friday in january that'll be the next time i'm with you guys friday the 7th so just letting you know it's going to be quiet for a little while on this channel all right number seven here uh jay towel says hey pastor mike do you think sanctification is complete upon our death and resurrection or do we continue to improve throughout eternity? Um, that's a that's a good question. So, um, when it comes to scriptures that come to my mind, trying to answer this question, there's not very many. There's not very many. Um, Ephesians talks about how God will show us the riches of His grace forever in the future. That we'll continually be seeing the goodness of His His, his grace and His love. We will still have experiences right? We won't have sin nature, but I don't think we will be sanctified in the sense of God's uh, as perfect and holy and wonderful as God is in, in, in all of his ways. There'll be a, a representation there, but not, uh, not reduplication, put it that way. Um, and so for that reason, I, I tend to think 
after death, there is a immediate sanctification. I don't think that there's a process that goes through like uh, extended time of suffering. Like some, some people think purgatory is going to do that for them. I, I think rather I, I lose j just like when you first came to Christ in that moment, a lot happened. So when you are resurrected and you lose the flesh and this corruption puts on incorruption, I think that that's a new condition, a new state for me to be in and I will be in holiness. But can I still learn and grow even though I'm free from sin? And my thought is, yeah, there'll be at least some growth knowledge, right? And other experiences we'll have. So I'm open to us continuing to grow and develop, though not sinning less over time because that sanctification means we, we do not sin. There is no sin in the eternal state. So it's not like this. So sanctification isn't going to be us sinning less, but it might be us going into deeper understanding of holiness, deeper experiences in relationship with God and others. And that sense could be just more goodness, right? It won't be less sin, but it might be more goodness. That would be my, my two cents. And maybe I need to think about this more. Very interesting question. Number eight, bad Wookie says, I often find myself being rude on social media. I don't mean, I don't mean to be, but it just gets the better of me. How do you approach people consistently in such a loving manner? I don't always do it. <laughs> so, um, and so, yeah, uh, here's, here's my thought. And, and this is, this is advice to myself as well, right? Cause I'm not fully sanctified in this regard, but, um, but my thought is, uh, if you have any doubt before you're posting something on social media, just wait, like even two or three minutes, just wait a couple minutes. That little moment of waiting, like I'll write something out and then I'll just, I'll just swipe up and, and let, and let the app go dormant for a few minutes and I'll come back later. And then with fresh eyes, I read what they wrote and I read what I wrote. And then usually that changes what I'm going to write. And so this is what scripture says, right? Be slow to speak, right? Um, Let's just take us to the verse because I think that this is it's the kind of thing we tell a kid, but oh my goodness, we need it bad in our lives today. Um, James 119, um, here it is. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. God's anger is perfect and pure when he's irritated, which I do think God has irritation towards sin. It's pure and perfect. It's always still appropriate. His response is always right. But my anger, man's anger, it just constantly taps into my carnality. I, I constantly overreact. And so slow to speak, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. This is, this is the formula. You read someone's post on social media before you reply, read it again and make sure you understood it. Because sometimes you just took it the wrong way. Maybe they meant something as a joke. You took it personally. Maybe you read it and only thought about your offense but didn't think about the details of what they said. So read it again. Be, be really careful that you're hearing them properly. Slow to speak, which means if you're frustrated, you you don't post it right away. You, you swipe it away and wait two minutes, five minutes, an hour. Come back later and say, do I still want to post this? And slow to anger. If you're angry, don't post. <laughs> don't post don't post and reply to social media when you're angry. Um, and I know I know I get plenty of opportunities in the comments. Um, and most of the people who view these videos don't comment on them. That's the way I am too. Most videos I watch, I don't comment on. Comments usually come because people are upset, right? They're, they're triggered by something. And so often comment sections don't even represent 
normal viewership, but I will see comments sometimes that are like, they're triggering to me and I have to stop and say, okay, move on, Mike, don't respond. And I cannot tell you, and, and, and maybe this will just help you to realize you're not alone. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've had to delete a comment. I typed out this whole thing and then I just delete the whole thing because mm, no, I'm not, even though they're wrong, if I post this, I'm going to be wrong too. So, Number nine, Monster, Monster M says, Yo, Mike, how would you react to someone who claims that angels don't have free will and that by extension, God commanded Satan to rebel, hoping to address this issue and the heart here? Thanks. I mean, you know, whenever I hear someone make a statement like that, that, um, that I don't know of any scripture to support it, and it's not a statement I've really heard before, at least not off the top of my head. Um, my first question is always, like, why do you think angels don't have free will? And I want to I want to put it on them to prove their theology point. Like, if I was to tell you guys Jesus is the only way, it's it's on me to be able to show you that in Scripture. If you're going to tell me there's other ways other than Jesus, well, now it's on you to show me that in Scripture. If you're going to tell me angels don't have free will, I need you to show me that in Scripture, right? I need you to show me that. Um, um, yeah, yeah, there, I can't think of anything in scripture that, that demonstrates angels don't have a, a, a will and the ability to make choices. It'd be very strange if God, if I think scripture would look different if God had commanded Satan to do what he did, because why is he then rebuking him for it? Right? Why? Why is he? Why does he confront the serpent? You know, on the on your belly you shall crawl, eat dust the days of your life, and and she's gonna, you know, the 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 descendant of Eve is gonna crush your head. Why? Why is there a rebuke if he was just following orders? That it doesn't. What I'm what I'm I'm not just saying that that would make God, you know, bad to do that. What I'm saying is it doesn't make sense. Like. The, the text of scripture is not trying to present things like this was a command of God that Satan was doing. When we read in passages of scripture where God rebukes the enemy, where, where, um, where Satan's being confronted, there's no, there, there's no idea here that he is the acting on the commands and orders of God. The closest you could get to it is statements in scripture that imply that God is allowing Satan to do certain things. He lowers the hedge in order of the you know, hedge of protection. This is, this is the term that's used in the, in the text there. It's like, it's like kind of a farming term, right? So he lowers the wall that's protecting Job from the attacks of Satan. But this isn't to say that he is the one causing Satan to do the things. Rather, he's been preventing him up until this point and then he'll allow him. So yeah, I think that, that, um, uh, that's weird. Now, um, the heart of the issue, here's, here's where we're just going to hypothesize together. Okay. What, why would somebody want to say that God commanded Satan to rebel? Possibly because, and here's my first thought, to be honest, because maybe there's a, there's something they want to accuse God of doing that's wrong. That might be one of the reasons. I, I want to be able to say that God did something I don't agree with. So I'm going to be like, he made Satan do that, then I'm, I'm upset with God now. Or alternately, possibly because they have a theological opinion, or I should say philosophical opinion, that free will is not really a thing. In which case they're trying to read that into scripture. Either one of these things, I think, is a motive that's not going to let them read the Bible at face value. So in response to this, I would ask them to prove it. Try to get them to prove it. Yeah. 
Jordana Lampfear says, I recently had an intense disappointment and grief in my life regarding fertility, and I'm struggling with not knowing God's path for my life. Do you have any biblical help to heal and move forward? Um, I think that the comfort of God that we get through Jesus Christ, through the promises of God, I think it's such that it should comfort you. That doesn't mean you won't grieve at the same time. So you're going through, you said disappointment and grief regarding fertility. So per perhaps this means you're saying like, I, I, I won't be able to have kids. That's a, you'd have to go through that to know what that's like. Someone would have to go through it to know what it's like. But I also think that God is good, that God is enough, right? It, it's not like if you have God, you don't care about having kids, but rather if you have God, you have something that is greater than the pain that you're currently experiencing. And so we don't, as Christians, we're not supposed to wipe our griefs away by saying that they don't matter or they don't count. We're supposed to hold them up to the glories and goodness of God, that the temporary sufferings of this time, they don't compare to the glory that's coming, that the difficulties of our current time don't compare to the promises of the future that God has given us. And so you are part of a, a, a bigger plan that God has for your life. And whether that includes you having, you know, your own kids or not, I hope it does, right? Jordana, we, we, we pray right now. We agree, Lord, bless her and, and, and open her womb and, and provide her with children that she might glorify you um, and experience the incredible joy that, that is there. Amen. Right? But, but if, if it is in God's plan, for whatever reason, God's worthy of your trust. And what I'm saying is I don't want you to think less of the suffering or the hardship or the grief of that. I want you to think just even more highly of God's goodness and his trustworthiness that you could look at him and say, Lord, if there's anyone I trust with this horrible situation, it's you. I trust you. There's the comfort that you have is trusting him and waiting on him. And, and yep, that's going to still be tough. Um, to move forward, to heal, I, I think that you would maybe look at what opportunities this does give you in life. If, if you're not having kids, if you're not taking care of them, you have a lot more opportunity to serve others um, because once you have kids, you have a lot less opportunity to serve others. And so perhaps this will open doors for you to minister to others and do things for the Lord uh, in the local church or a parachurch, whatever, in ways that you never would have otherwise. So may God help you. James Fitzgerald has a question. It says, the book of Luke is being described as the social justice gospel in progressive circles. What do you think about Luke being described as the social justice gospel? Um, I think it sounds like baloney. Is what I think. <laughs> um, here's the thing. So there is no social justice gospel. There's just the gospel. You hear me? There is no such thing as a social justice gospel. And to even use that terminology is to imply that there is some alternate gospel that's about social justice that's different than just the gospel. And the ultimate gospel is, is Jesus affirms this. I mean, read in Luke, right? Where in Luke, he says, to store up treasures not on earth where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven where thieves do not, they don't break in steel and moth does not destroy. He wants you to store up treasures in heaven. Well, that's not social justice. This is about the heavenly kingdom. Now, there are elements of the gospel that relate to social justice, but they aren't social justice. Do you understand it? What I'm suggesting is it relates to it, but it's not the same thing as it. 
And so the gospel overflows onto topics like loving your neighbor and giving to the poor and taking care of those in need. And it was, it was definitely more on the radar of the early church to take care of the poor than it is on the radar of most churches, at least the ones I've been around. I don't think it's on the radar that much. And I, I admit that. I agree with that. But that's not because what we need to do is trade the gospel for social justice. It's just that we've lost an important element, but the gospel is still the central thing. I'd rather be a part of a church that preaches the gospel and does nothing for the poor than one that does everything for the poor and compromises the nature of the very gospel itself. Because Jesus says, don't labor for food which perishes, but for that which gives eternal life. This is, this is the highest priority, is eternal life and salvation. And so, um, yep, remember the poor, right? It says that in Acts. Um, I guess I'd want to listen to the specific verses they'd try to quote from Luke to, you know, use their um, social justice sort of lens of viewing the scripture. But I think that what I see over and over again with Christians who call themselves progressive Christians, and, and if you're a progressive Christian, I don't mean this as an insult or offense to you. What I've seen over and over again, though, from people who self-identify as progressives is um, commitments to things other than the gospel that get read back into the Bible. And I just see it over and over and over again. And so I'm not surprised that they pick one particular gospel and call it the social justice gospel. I'd want to look into it and find out what they're really saying about it. Um, the, the overreaction we don't want from uh, more conservative Christians, and I mean theologically conservative, is to think that we, we shouldn't care about the poor, we shouldn't take care of the poor, that there's no concern for the poor. Um, that's an overreaction, that's a bad reaction, and I don't want to do that, right? Like, you don't fix theology by becoming the opposite of bad theology. You, you, then it's an overreaction. Um, instead, we need to just be fully committed to the wholeness of what Scripture teaches, and sometimes that will intersect with a few progressive ideas. Sometimes it will intersect with conservative ideas or or um, whatever, right and left-wing different things. But the thing is that it's only incidentally intersecting with some of their ideas. It's your commitment to Scripture and the Word of God that is guiding your thinking in all areas. That That's the ideal anyway. <clears throat> um, Christine says, what specific examples of vows or oaths do you think Numbers 30 was referring to? Thanks for your ministry. All right, let's look at Numbers 30. And we will read them. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of, his, of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that he proceed, all that proceeds out of his mouth. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand, <clears throat> and the Lord will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. She's under the authority of her home, and so she, there, it's a protection for minors is what this is. Um, we have laws, it'll sound strange to modern ears because they think, they'll think of it as sexist. But this is um, a protection for minors so that they won't be able to over-obligate themselves to things, making a rash vow as a, as a young person. And that's what young people do <laughs> sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so, but we could go on and talk about the marriage issues here, but you're asking about what the nature of the vows are. One second. Sorry, I just had to clear my throat. So the nature of the vows, it, it's it's super vague, and I think it's meant to be vague in, in Numbers 30. It's 
a vow to the Lord. That's a very vague thing, right? Just a vow, whatever vow you've committed. So it's, it's in other words, a promise that is made religiously. I promise before God and I bind myself with an obligation. I'm going to do this. Here's my vow to the Lord that I, I it's like saying, I swear to God, right? I'm, I'm swear, not cursing here, but swear like an oath. I give an oath to God that I will do A, B, and C. And God is setting up in Numbers 30, the principle of you don't go back on your word. When you make a vow and you bring God's name into it, you do not go back on your word. Now, Jesus was confronting this situation um, of how some people tried to get around this. God's obviously concerned with people just being people of their word. You, When you say it, you do it. And if you bring my name into it, you, you, you are bound. Um, now, with... Um, with Jesus, he comes into a scenario where they're trying to find ways around this, right? Wiggle room around it. And so they'll go, oh, well, if you make an oath by the name of God, well, you know, you know, verses say maybe you make an oath by the altar or maybe you make an oath by the sacrifice of on the altar. And they're trying to find different ways of making the oath to make it less binding so they can find basically loopholes to get around some of it. And Jesus responds to this by saying, hey, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't play these vow games where you're like, well, I didn't technically promise by the highest thing, so I don't have to. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. <clears throat> so the, the, the legal thing is about honoring the name of God and being people who, who do what they say. The, um, the new covenant issue is just being people who do what they say, right? It's not, it's not just about it being under the law, but just being a person who fulfills their vows. You do what you say. People can trust you. And, and I've learned that... Um, the more honest you are in life, the more pe the more people don't need you to make a vow. When you're a really honest person, you don't have to say, I promise, I promise, I promise. It's, it's more often dishonest people who have to say, I promise, because they have to kind of find a way of signaling to their friends and family. This time, I'll keep my, my word to you. I double promise, right? I promise, I, I swear I'll do it. I swear to God, I'll do it. And they have to say these things because they've earned the distrust of those around them. So Jesus wants us to be people of integrity. You know, when you say, I'll be there, you'll be there. That's that they can trust you on that. Um, obviously, <clears throat> you know, there's an earthquake and your car gets swallowed by the, by the earth. I think people understand that, <laughs> but it's about being people, people of your, of your word. Uh, number 13, this is Vanessa C who says, hi, Mike approached by a mother God, uh, by mother God in a department store. <laughs> the way he worded it's hilarious. I'm going to read it as you worded it. Approached by Mother God in a department store, and they used Galatians 4.26. How could I bring clarity to this verse for them next time? So, um, Vanessa, I know what you mean. For those who don't know, there's a cult, and it's it's based in South Korea, but it is fast, fast growing, and they are aggressively trying to proselytize people. And they teach that there is a God the Mother. Right, this that they're not teaching. It's not feminism where they're the feminist theology where they're teaching that God is female. Rather, they're like, yes, you have a father God and there's another deity, mother God or God the mother, and you're supposed to worship both of them. Now, to make things worse, before we go to the verse they use to prove this, <clears throat> to make things worse, this mother God they think is a real flesh and blood person, a Korean woman in her 70s named Zhang Gilja, and she lives in South Korea and you can go visit her on their compound at what they call Zion. And they call Zion, right? Because they're trying to make it feel like it's more biblical. Um, <clears throat> this is just a Korean lady who's just running a cult, right? She took over a cult after her, her, um, 
the guy she was having an affair with died. Um, and his name <clears throat> was An Song Hong, and he claimed he was Jesus come back and the father because they have a weird theology about what who God is. But he claimed he was Jesus come back and the father and, and, and the Holy Spirit at the same time. And he comes and lives a human life, and he died in 1985. In 1988, the cult split in two. And one group went one way and they've kind of like petered out and the other group got extremely aggressive and they started reaching out internationally to try to evangelize, to get basically uh, obedience, growth, and money. And they're very interested in, in uh, rich people right now, especially. They want to get into the, to the rich sectors of the world because it's evil. So <clears throat> here's a verse they use. You're like, how, are they, how would they say that we're, we have a mother God? And the verse Galatians 4.26 the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And they call this mother God, they call her the new Jerusalem, right? And she came out of heaven and she came down to Korea. Um, <clears throat> and there, and she lives where? In the place they call Zion. So it's like the new Jerusalem. So she is considered to be a God. Okay, here's what they're reading. And here's what you might ask them. Where in the text does it say that this Jerusalem is a deity? It doesn't, does it? right? She's called a she, but the question we should ask is why is this new Jerusalem, this, this Jerusalem that's above, excuse me, why is it called a she? And the answer, you have to just read back a few verses and realize Paul's using an allegory, an allegory, which means not literal. And he calls Jerusalem a she, and he calls Sinai a she. So let's look at this. This is allegorically speaking for these two women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. So Mount, Mount Sinai, Hagar, these are related allegorically and they bear slaves or, or those who are in servants in bondage, right? Now, <clears throat> this Hagar is Mount Sinai. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. So it's just a human woman that's being related to Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children. So the present Jerusalem is also a she. Why? Because you can call cities with feminine names all day long. Nobody thinks they're gods. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. This Jerusalem that's above is talking about how our citizenship belongs to heaven and we're part of God's kingdom. And so the Jerusalem's like the, the center of the promised land, you know, theologically speaking. And so Jerusalem that's above is to say we're part of God's kingdom. Theologically, we belong. We're citizens of it. So you could say that like Mother Russia is, is, is the term I think of. Mother Russia, like Russia's my mom. I'm not Russian. But if I was, I'd be like Mother Russia. Okay, so I, I'd be like Mother California or something like that, which just makes me sad. But, but yeah, that this is, this is our citizenship. It belongs to heaven because we're part of the kingdom of heaven and we're, and we're, in, we're in freedom. Right. So nowhere in this passage is deity being brought up. It's an allegory about cities being talked about like they're like they're ladies and they have children and those who belong associate citizenship with that city. Earthly city, you're in slavery, you're not part of the kingdom of Christ yet. You're still in bondage, not not forgiven of your sins, not set free and made sons and, and daughters of God. Or new, the Jerusalem in heaven, where you are set free. You're part. Of, you're the citizens. You're 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 children of God now. So, um, yeah, Galatians four twenty six is not about a deity at all. There's a few of the problems with that verse. Make them show you where does it say that this is a god, the New Jerusalem. If if the New Jerusalem is a god, then who's Hagar? Make them answer you on this. Like, don't don't just ask the question and just sit silently until they answer. If 
if the Jerus if Jerusalem's a god, right? Who's Hagar? And then just let it sit because they're just ripping verses out of context to teach uh, unbiblical theology. I hope that that gives you some help. One three ify says, uh, oh, by the way, uh, before, I'll go back one second. Real quick, I have tons of teaching on this group, the Mother God Cult, and I go through Galatians 4.26 and Genesis and other verses they use. There's a playlist. Go to BibleThinker.org. Just scroll down and you'll see like series. And there's a series on the Mother God Cult and or the World Mission Society Church of God. That's their official name. But they change their name all the time. And because they may possibly change their name in the future, I've just called it the Mother God Cult. So people will always, it will trigger as soon as they hear this Mother God teaching, they'll know who I'm talking about. One three, if he says, I'm a new convert, praise God. I love God. However, since I'm a new convert, I haven't chosen a denomination yet. Must I hurry and choose one? Right now, I'm just happy reading the Bible, believing and praying. Um, yeah, well, I, I let me just, let me reframe what it means to choose a denomination. Um, and it depends on which, which, which denomination or group you end up going to. In my view... Going to a church that is of a particular denomination does not mean you have to have total agreement with them on every issue that that denomination takes a stand on. That's my view. You might want to find out if that's the view of your local church. If you go there, hey, you know, how much do I need to agree on to be considered a, a member of the church here? And find out what the answer to that question is. So in that sense, you, you know, you need to agree on those issues if you're going to call yourself a member of the church. I do think you need to be in a hurry to be in church. And by church, I mean here, a local gathering of believers who worship together, who um, do communion together, who do baptisms. If you haven't been baptized, go get baptized. It doesn't mean you're picking a denomination. When you get baptized, you're baptized into Jesus. You're not baptized into a denomination. Anybody who thinks differently is confused. And, um, and so you should do that, even if you don't agree with them on everything. If you feel as though you're, you really are unsettled on this issue, then you might search for a non-denominational church in your area. And uh, one of the original ideas, I know denominational people tend to be pretty cynical about non-denominational churches, but one of the ideas ideally behind non-denominational is not that we don't have opinions about these things, but that we don't we, we choose specifically not to divide on those topics. So in a non-denominational environment, you might might have a little more flexibility on things like, what is your eschatology? What is your exact view, exact view of the of the method of baptism and things like that? So, um, having some flexibility on those issues is healthy, I think, in Christian environments. So, yeah, I think being in a hurry to be involved in a church, even if you don't agree with them on every issue, as long as the main things are the main thing, and get get baptized if you haven't yet. Um, and yeah, talk to the leaders of your local church and ask them what they're requiring, how much agreement they're requiring. And then that will inform you on where you want to fellowship, I think. Peter Basakov says, what is the meaning of the words seal and deposit in 2 Corinthians 1.22? Let's look at this together. Okay, so um, I wonder what translation you might be using here. Deposit, NIV? Yeah. So NIV says... Um, that God has set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And I'm fine with that as far as translation goes. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar or something. I'm, I'm just saying I'm, I'm not going to have an issue with those terms or say NASB, which says um, 
in verse 22, who has sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Uh, probably deposit is um, more easy to understand. I guess I would like pledge. I like pledge better for a different reason. <laughs> Let's look at the ESV. I'll tell you in a second why. Um, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the nice thing about the ESV and the NAS and the NASB is that they translate <clears throat> this word pledge and guarantee. Um, NIV translates it as deposit. Now deposit makes a lot of sense because in our modern terminology, we know that when you when you place a deposit, it's a down payment. Um, and so this refers to like the 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 idea of a down payment. The spirit's like a down payment, but the idea of payment here is a little convoluted when it comes to the nature of the spirit in our relationship with him. This is why I think I like, say, ESV and ASB a little better on this particular one. Um, so this is talking about our current condition as Christians and how that relates to our future condition, our future eternal life. And so God has put his seal on us, that is through the Holy Spirit, and he's given us a guarantee, and that is the Holy Spirit. These are different concepts. One, a seal is like a stamp saying, this is mine. If I put my seal on something, I mean, we don't use seals anymore, right? But if I put a stamp on something that's like, say a lot of people will have in their, their books, they'll have their library, they'll, they'll have books and they'll, and they'll stamp, you know, from the library of Mike Winger or something like that, you know, and um, this is, this is a book we'll be talking about on Monday. But uh, that, <clears throat> that idea is that the Holy Spirit is God's way of saying you're mine. So this is, this is the spirit of adoption, scripture says. His spirit in you when you get saved is God's way of saying, you're mine. And I'm giving you my spirit as like a way of identifying you with me to show you that you're mine. You're my child. You're mine. I love you. I've accepted you. I've embraced you. You've been washed clean by Jesus and you are now mine. Now the guarantee or the pledge or the deposit, that second word that I've highlighted on your screen there, I think this is, this is different. One is a claim, you're mine. And the other one is a promise, right? The seal is a claim, you're mine. The the guarantee or the spirit is also a promise, a pledge about your future. So you're mine and I will bring you to myself and I will give you eternal life and I will resurrect you, give you a new body and eternal joys in heaven forever. That's the part of the function of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is the Holy Spirit tells you you're a child of God and is just being with you is a promise about your future glory to come. So that that's how I understand those two words in that verse. Number 16, let's see, Emmy Lay says, how do I love and exhort a close family member who knows and believes the gospel, but doesn't seem bothered by some sinful choices, such as going to rowdy parties, getting drunk? Um, so they know and believe the gospel, but they're not bothered by some sinful choices. I think there's a really old school way of handling this that is a little underrated in our, in our current day and time. Because it's seen as rude. And I think it's like when you go to someone and you say, drunkenness is a sin. <laughs> this is, how is this so controversial? But it is, right? Drunkenness is a sin. And, and if you're like, Mike, that, that's not what Jesus would say. Well, are, are you sure? Have you read Jesus? <laughs> you know, that's not what Paul would say. He would be a lot nicer than that. Or like, oh, have you read 1 Corinthians? Right? Um. You might show them scripture because then it's not just coming from your opinion. Maybe they really are kind of unaware of what scripture says on issues. So you show them in Ephesians where it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And you tell them, hey, when you, when you get drunk, you're hindering the work of the spirit in your life. 
this is a lot of confrontation. I recommend you do it alone, just the two of you. You do it in a calm moment at a good timing, preferably. And you say, hey, there's some things I want to talk to you about. I love you. But getting drunk is wrong. And Jesus calls you to more than that. Here's some scriptures I wanted to share with you. This is old school. This is an underrated method of just, you know, telling people that they're doing wrong things. <laughs> it's so, it's, this is, this is, okay. We look at, we look at the ancient culture, right? In the Near East, or we look at the ancient times uh, in the scripture. And we often are like, boy, that was a weird culture. I think that when we get really biblically minded, we start looking at our own culture and we go, now that is a weird culture. And this is one of those areas where I think that our culture is weird. It's considered mean, rude, inappropriate, judgy to just tell somebody that something they're doing that's wrong is something that's wrong. And so there's an element of that where you, you know, you just have to realize that telling somebody straight up, this is, this is wrong. You should stop that. That is not unloving. Although you got to be ready for the fallout because in a culture where they hate and are allergic to this kind of confrontation, there's a good chance that they'll respond very negatively. And that's where you, you, you wait for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, but you realize you had to tell them, you had to tell them the truth. Um, there's other things you can do, which is just asking questions, asking questions, right? Um, where you say to somebody, Hey, um, do you think that, um, what do you think that, how do you think your, your, your commitment to Jesus relates to your drinking? And you let them try to answer you. Questions can sometimes be very powerful because it's a way of saying something without saying it directly. And it makes somebody think because you, you can shut down what someone says, but you have to think about their question. It's like unavoidable. So you may also approach things with questions like that. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I think that that's honestly that there's a biblical way to do this. But all that being said, there's a warning in scripture if you are going to approach somebody. And I want to make sure to echo that. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, which is what you're describing, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So... It's one thing to speak confrontational. Hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's something else to do it like you're like you're just mad. You're you're, you're doing wrong things and you're you're upset with them. Your idea is you are trying to restore. So your heart, this is the heart work. You make sure, Lord, I'm doing this to restore. I want to bring them into your will and into the light of following Christ. And I I pray you'd help me to do this in a way that's restorative to them. But you should speak to them. So do it in a spirit of gentleness so you're not trying to be harsh even though you are going to confront and you're going to be real and honest. And watch out. Keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted because there's something about confronting others where we are tempted to be proud, arrogant, uh, unreflective of, of our own sin issues. And so first examine yourself and examine your heart. And, and I think that work through Galatians 6.1 as you go to approach them on these topics. That would be my, my thoughts. Brittany Hodges says, what are your thoughts on Leviathan? Do you believe he is an actual creature or more symbolism? If so, where is he now? Where is he now? Um, oh, man. Okay, so back in, in, in a, a younger time for me, I thought Leviathan was just, it just obviously he's a literal creature. You read Leviathan, you're like, he's a literal creature. And then, then the only discussion is what kind of creature is he? And as you... Um, um, let me take us to uh, Job 41. We'll look at some of this. Um, can you draw... The, now we're in New King James. I'm just bouncing around. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or, or snare his tongue 
with a line which you lower. Okay, the idea here is that he's a water creature. That's why you would try to draw him out with a hook, or so it seems, right? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him <clears throat> as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Or are you going to control him? No. Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Again, it's a fishing analogy, right? So Leviathan seems to be some sort of like really large, really dangerous, uncontrollable sea-type creature here. Okay, L lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. This is this is with my previous view of it's just describing a literal creature. Um, lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Now, initially, I, I when I was younger, I thought that this meant he had act. There, Leviathan was a real creature, and Job had actually encountered Leviathan and tried to take him on. And was like, I'll never do that again. <laughs> but I don't think it means that. Even if you take it a very, very straightforward literal interpretation, it's a suggestion. Go ahead, give it a shot, and remember what happens, because you'll never want to do that again. So it's it's all predictive of the future. I don't think it's talking about a past experience with Leviathan. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? All right, then that's the main point. God's like, hey, I've... You can't handle this thing I made. You certainly can't handle me. Um, let's read more. Uh, I will not conceal his limbs, his his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? If he has an outer coat, that's very tough. Who can approach him with a double bridle? He can't be contained. Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? So then you're looking. Okay, he's got he's got really tough skin. He's got a really big mouth with giant terrible teeth. His rows of scales are his pride. Okay, so he's he's scaled. It could be a fish-type creature. It could be um, something else that was scales. Uh, one is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined to another one to another. It feels a little bit like um, like uh, Smaug boasting about uh, how he can't be pierced, but that black arrow got him. Anyway, they stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. His sneak, so is he's he's shooting out flames? Is this the idea? Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out, smoke goes out of his nostrils, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. And it just goes on. You you look at strength in his neck, and if you take it very literally, it's difficult to to say this is anything other than some sort of really fantastic creature that is theoretically could exist. Okay. And there's even guys who do work on this and they try to say, you know, theoretically there could be a fire, a, a, a creature that breathes, maybe not literal fire, but like uh, um, acidic or flaming type liquids that there's, there's creatures that have liquids like the, like the, um, what's that, that beetle that mixes it like it, the bombard beetle, is that what it's called? It mixes chemicals that explode and pop. And it's actually a pretty ridiculous explosion that happens there to scale. It's a really powerful one. So it could be something like that. Um, so yeah, but but it wouldn't be a creature we're aware of. That, that I think is the point here. If this is taken very literally, there's nothing that we know of currently living that corresponds to this. So it could be something extinct. It could be something that was known only to memory. Um, others would say, oh, but it's it's all, it's poetic exaggeration. And now I don't know the right answer here. I'm just, this is when I don't know, I like to evaluate different, you know, positions. Others would say it's... Um, a poetic exaggeration and they go well maybe it's like an it's like a, a hippopotamus um but some of these things are a little bit difficult um it talks about like the size of his tail 
and it, and I'm trying to see if I can find the verse where it mentions that. But it speaks of like the, I think it speaks of the size of his tail, and if that's or, or I'm thinking of a different one. But it does. It just starts to get difficult to like say that this is a known creature, even if it's poetic exaggeration. It starts to feel like it doesn't really connect that well to known creatures. Then we have ancient Near Eastern studies that suggest that Leviathan was a known mythical creature, as in they knew it wasn't real. It was used mythically, like in 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 stories. Um, I shouldn't use the word myth there. Legend. There we go. That's a better word. Let me be careful with my terms. Uh, myth is a is a is a careful term in some of this stuff. We have to be careful how we use it. it doesn't mean it wasn't true, um, but a legend type creature. Now, if that's the case, it could simply be God's just using this 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 sort of boogeyman of legend to demonstrate his power he's trying to show a correspond to like the biggest boogeyman of legend but he is so much greater and more powerful don't mess with god it's kind of the lesson that's there um in in which case you wouldn't be looking for um uh, an actual creature there now how do you how do you like decide between these two things well you you've got you've got two points that lend you towards the, the non-literal meaning. One, if Leviathan is, and I haven't looked into this, so I'm, this is hypothetical. If Leviathan is a known legendary type creature at the time, then the initial readers of Job would have been likely to think it was non-literal and it was being used for poetic reasons. So that that's something I would want to vet before I put my eggs in the basket, but it's it would be in favor of a non-literal interpretation. The second issue is that Job is incredibly poetic. The whole the whole book is very is very poetic, and I mean, like it's literally poetry um, or prose, whichever the right term here is. And as you read Job, you 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 will see that it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I think Job was a real man who really went through these things, but I think it was written down with a lot of poetry embedded into it as part of this epic story of the life of Job that talks about the overall problem of evil that mankind deals with and how we should respond in our hearts to the problem of evil. That to me is a check mark in in the in the category of um, I'm more inclined to be open to a, a non-literal meaning as opposed to let's say when Jesus feeds the five thousand, there's no reason to take this as non-literal, right? He he takes the bread and he multiplies literally when he walks on water. He literally walks. There's no context that makes this poetic, that makes this open to being non-literal. Um, so again, this is just trying to have consistent, you know, Bible study methods here, hermeneutics. Um, where is he now? If, if Leviathan is a literal creature, I think we're most likely thinking you, you would have to either say he just is extinct or that he's just a, pre, a so far undiscovered sea creature. I mean, sea creatures, there's, I'm sure there's lots of sea creatures we haven't discovered yet, but I'm slightly inclined, slightly to lean, lean towards the non-literal view, um, purely because of the context. Yeah. Good question, Brittany. I um, I might have a different answer for you one day when I study Job more. Aaron Winter says, what do you do when there are only Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholic and extremely progressive churches within a day's drive of where you live? <sighs> start a church. <laughs> Aaron, start a church. If there's, if there's no churches that are Bible teaching, it, start a church. 
just grab whatever believers you can and say, Hey guys, I'm not saying I'm called to be a pastor. I just, we'll just get together. We'll just read the word. We'll pray, we'll worship, and we'll share insights with each other. And then let's pray that God will bring gifted people here and we'll have a gathering that's Bible focused and, and humbly start a church. That's what I'd recommend. Um, number 19, 72 Zonk, 72 C Zonk says, what advice do you have for a man who married a Christian, but she's turned away from the faith? I struggle with feeling betrayed by her and God and worry about raising our newborn in the faith. <clears throat> Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love herself sacrificially. Love her... Don't withhold your care for her, your kindness to her because of because she turns she's turned away from the faith. All the more see it as a way of demonstrating Christ's love towards us when we were still sinners. He died for us. Give her incredible grace. Don't cut her out of your life because she can't be part of your spiritual life. And when she reacts negatively, you turn the other cheek and you speak kindly and graciously. Now, when it comes to raising your newborn in the faith, I think there I would put my foot down. <laughs> And say, I am, I am, I am, I am this baby's dad, and I'm going to share the truth of Christ with with our child. And I don't think you can stop the mom from also sharing her unbelief with the baby. And most likely, you know, statistically speaking, I mean, after many years of doing youth ministry, your kid's going to grow up thinking, I'm. Christian and not Christian. I mean, almost every little kid I found who had parents of different faiths or of one of no faith and one of some particular religious group, they almost always just just do a smorgasbord view. What are you? Well, I'm Christian and Muslim because my mom's Christian, my dad's Muslim. I'm Christian and atheist because my mom's, you know, atheist, my dad's Christian. I think that that is typically what happens. But one of the tiebreakers is this. When your, your kid, your little girl, little boy looks at you and sees your love and your godliness and your character and then sees these things not portrayed in a Christ-like way from mom, this is going to be a tiebreaker for them. Um, so one thing you can do to prepare is understand the arguments and reasons, whether they're emotional or intellectual, that your, your wife has for having rejected the faith understand them and research them and get good at apologetics, at least in those areas, because these are the same areas you're going to have to talk to your kid about. And, but, but as much as you disagree on these issues, extend love and kindness and grace to your wife, demonstrate the love Jesus had on the cross when he says, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, you feel betrayed by her, but, and you, you said, and let me talk a little bit about your sentence here. You said, I feel betrayed by her and God and um, this is, it's, this isn't about you. It's just not about you. Her and her turning from God makes you feel like you're betrayed by her. Um, this is between her and God. And that's a scary thing. You think God, I mean, I'm not saying, okay, 72 seasonk. I'm not saying that you believe God betrayed you. I get how you wrote it. I struggle with feeling betrayed by her and God. That's a fair thing to struggle with. But here's where you got to like give yourself real honest talk and say, <clears throat> God was faithful to me and her. She was not faithful to God. Now this hopefully is part of a story in the long run she returns. And she comes back stronger than ever. 
but it's not because of God's betrayal. It's not. And, um, you know, the advice in first Peter three is to wives that they'll honor their husbands, even if they're not believers. And I think the advice here to you is the same. In fact, let's, let's look at it now. I, I think it would go both ways. Um, it says to wives, but, but we'll, I'm going to offer the other side of the coin to, to a husband. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Here, I would say husband, uh, be loving and gracious and self-sacrificial, nourishing and cherishing your wife, right? That even if, if she doesn't obey the word, she might be one without a word. That is not because you're debating her constantly, but because you demonstrate Christ-like love to her in ways that she just can't help but see. She might be won by the conduct of her husband, right? When, when she observes your loving and gracious and, and cherishing and nourishing conduct accompanied by that, the reverence you have for Christ and the love you have for God, you know, then it, it goes on. It, it hopefully will have that impact. And then um, the impact it has on your kids is to sanctify them. This is what scripture says, that your your presence now is the only sanctifying impact, the gospel of Christ, the, the love of God that is going to be in the life of your kids. So all that much more, you need to hold that marriage together and you need to be there to impact your kid. So um, God help you. I hope you can have a stronger and stronger marriage. Ethan Tusker says, or Tusker says, um, what do you believe is the standard of modesty biblically? Um, that's a tough one because I think I, th I think the way I'd answer it, it might not feel helpful, Ethan, um, is that the standard is modesty. <laughs> so I think the standard of modesty is to be modest. And um, some examples of this is 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 motive related that that men and women and this applies more nowadays to men than before because men are nowadays more into grooming and appearances than they have been historically in the past as as much okay I, I, these things probably go in waves right you go into certain certain areas usually the wealthier areas and the more where they have more money people tend to be more obsessed with this kind of stuff um but but for men and women it, it, it's there and it's present in our current culture it seems pretty pretty strongly um motives should not be to competitively look better than others that's a, that, that's an immodest and a bad motive to competitively look better than others. Another, and this is girls, girls, you know, you know, <laughs> um, and another, uh, bad motive would be in order to draw sexual attention, to draw sexual desire out of others by the way you look. If, if, if what you're doing is intended to draw sexual desire out of others by the way you look, that's immoral by nature. Just the very intention there is immoral. And th that's what modesty means. Now, modesty is considered like uh, almost a sin in our culture, but that's because our culture flips evil for good. We call evil good and good evil. So we, we've got these flipped. It's a glorious thing when an attractive person chooses to dress modestly so as not to, you know, cause issues for others. Now, if you have lust issues towards others, whether they're dressing attractively or not, that's your problem. I'm not putting that on them. But they do have a responsibility before God to live modestly. You have a responsibility to not look and to not engage in things. Um, so everyone's responsible for their own issues here. But um, but yeah, when it comes to modesty, you you could be like, yeah, but okay, but how low can a blouse be, or or how tight can somebody's shirt be, or how short can their shorts be? And this is where it seems to me there's a lot of gray area. Okay, I, I don't I don't know how to make a rule for people. It seems like um, in some cultures. It, it really is different in that culture. 
And I suppose one example of this would be to look around the culture and be like, are you guys finding that attractive, like sexually attractive when they dress like that? And if the answer is yes, then that's not a culture issue. That's a, that's a sexual immodesty issue. So if I go to a culture and, and the women are not wearing shirts, am I to tell them, hey, guys, women, all women have to wear shirts? I guess what I want to ask is, is, is maybe contrary to all my expectations, are the men in that culture oogling after the naked torsos of the women? And if the answer is yes, then I go, ah, this confirms to me it's not a culture issue. This is just immodesty is part of the culture in a way that's ungodly and should be changed. Right. The short shorts or I go to the I'm in California, I go to the beach and and there's like, you know, inappropriately dressed human beings. <laughs> and and how do I know? Because talk to how many people struggle when they go to the beach with the way people look there. OK, this is obviously our swimwear culture is ungodly in its very nature because it stumbles people constantly. There's, there's plenty of you Christians would avoid going to those environments because it's such a stumbling thing to you that you don't want to fall into that so you just avoid it so yeah um modesty um difficult to identify exactly in some areas but those are some of the things that i would use to try to help figure it out um, motives intentions and impact all matter in relation to modesty and the rule is not as a christian how little can i get away with wearing how seductively can i dress and it's okay because the rule is not don't be seductive, but the rule is be modest. So it seems to me that the requirements of modesty are actually a little higher. Um, and I wouldn't say, uh, they say modest is hottest. I don't know, what, what does that mean? You'll be more sexually attractive if you're modest. Again, we're tapping into the wrong motives here. The purpose is not to do that, is to dress modest, actually modestly, where you realize that your sexual attractiveness is not the purpose of your outward appearance, uh, but honoring Christ is. Anyway, I hope that those are some th thoughtful and helpful things. If anyone wants to push back and think, "Well, Mike, you're just being, uh, you're being a chauvinist," or "Mike, you're being, um, you're being a legalist," if you're going to accuse me of being a legalist, I challenge you to prove it, please. Because if you just accuse me of being a legalist, then I'm going to say all you're doing is just randomly accusing people of legalism when they're just trying to seek holiness, and you're just being a punk. <laughs> <laughs> so I could say that because because uh, you can't punch me in the face directly at the moment. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think that modesty is a is a lost virtue in our culture and Christians have to have it in their own culture and they can't look to the culture around them to tell them what it is. We've got to actually see it as a virtue. So that's 20 questions, you guys. Thank you so much for joining. And I will be with you on Monday with Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case detective, um, who's going to be talking about his new book and uh, some of his testimony and things like that and about the uniqueness of Jesus. And really, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be cool to talk about. Otherwise, I won't see you guys till next year. So, um, Yes, I'm still working, by the way, and I, I keep trying to announce this because people keep asking. I'm still working on the women in ministry study. I'm plowing through it. I'm, it's just a lot of work, and it's slow going because I'm doing a lot of research on it. And I don't expect it to be out anytime soon. After it's done, though, once I have it done, I'll present it all as thoughtfully and carefully as possible. And then I'm going to have a, a, a brief break there, and then I will start on the book of Hebrews the book of Hebrews. There's going to be verse by verse going through the book of Hebrews on my channel. I'm not done verse by verse teaching, just on a pause while I do this project. So God bless you guys. Keep your eyes on Jesus and um, take every thought captive to his obedience.